Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Today we're continuing our series, Walking Through the Book of Mark. We're in chapter 4, and verse 35 begins this way. It says, that day, that day. This is the same day, the day we've been talking about for a few weeks now. We've got all this teaching, and we have this three-year ministry of Jesus, and yet Mark spends about three pages on this one day. I think that he does so to, to really show us, you know, the, the, the height of the ministry of Jesus and how busy he was and, and how tiring it could be. And, and because of this, we can see the heart. We can see the humanity of Christ. It had been a strenuous day in, in Jesus' taxing life. It had begun with a blasphemous set of accusations from the Pharisees. Then his mother and his brothers had attempted to kidnap him and take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was out of his mind. Next, leaving the crowded house, he went down by the sea where, amidst a a great pressing crowd, he began to teach them in parables. And the crowd was so great that he ended up having to get into a boat and pushing offshore a little bit so he could teach there in the hot sun, the hot Middle Eastern sun for the rest of the day. Finally, with the approach of evening, Jesus is exhausted and he gives the, the order to pull out to sea. You see, when Jesus zipped up skin and and put on flesh in the incarnation, he became subject to its laws, including its fatigue. Even though in his perfect world, the, the way that God originally made it, there was no tiredness, there was no brokenness, there was no loneliness, there was no pain, there was no hurt. Since the fall, all of these things have been introduced into the world. That day... When evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, I want, you to, I want, I want to highlight this. I want to underscore this. I want you to, if you've got your life notes there, you could, if you've got something to write with, you could underline it there. Let us go over to the other side. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And when God says that something's going to happen, you can put money on it. It happens. His will is never thwarted. When God wants something done and declares it to be done, it is what happens. When he says, sun, stand still, the sun stands still. When he tells it to rise, it comes up. And all of creation is moving to the rhythm of God, moving to the rhythm of who God is. And he says, we're going over there, guys. And he points to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now set in the the hills of of northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee is is almost 700 feet below sea level. It's one of the lowest lakes or seas in the world as far as uh, elevation. It's nearly eight miles across at its widest point, and it's more than 12 miles long from north to south. It's a relatively shallow lake or sea with a maximum depth of 143 feet. The sea's location makes it it's subject to, to sudden storms. 
violent storms, as the wind comes up over the eastern mountains and it brings, brings the air over, and these violent storms come up suddenly onto the sea. Around the sea, you have the hills around Galilee. They reach nearly 1,400 feet above sea level, and, and the mountains of the Golan Heights, which in Jesus' day was called the Decapolis, there were 10 Greek cities, 10 non-Jewish uh, Gentile cities on that side of the lake. Those, those hills there, those Golan Heights reach 2,500 feet. And so storms are especially likely when this, when this air comes across and, and, the, and has this clash of the, of the thermoclines there and bring up these furious storms in such a short time. And so here's where the disciples find themselves with Jesus in the boat, a tired Jesus saying, we're going over there. He tells them, at the end of the night, we're going to be over there. Not maybe, not perhaps, not if everything goes according to plan, but we're going there. You get the message? We're going there. It says in verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, if you haven't been here for the whole series, you can go back and pick up the, the messages that we've already had here on, on podcasts. But we've, we've talked about how Mark's primary source for his gospel was the apostle Peter. And to see little details like this, and you can see them scattered throughout Mark, little details like this, you can see that this had to be an eyewitness account that was relating this for Mark to write down. They took Jesus just as he was in the boat. So you get this kind of picture of this tired Jesus who's been teaching all day. He's healing people. He's walking in the, in the Middle Eastern sun. He's out on the boat. And then if you've ever been on the water in, in, in a boat in the hot sun, you know how that, how that can make you even more tired. It can just take it out of you. And so he's kind of dragging himself on this boat, and it tells us, it says, there were also other boats with him. So a bunch of boats are going to go across the sea together this evening. And in verse 37, it tells us, a furious squall, a furious squall came up. Now this was horrific. The Jews were terrified of water in general. They weren't like their Phoenician counterparts who were seafaring folks, you know, kind of like the Vikings. The Phoenicians were known for that. The Jews weren't. And as I said, the Sea of Galilee wasn't this great big, it wasn't like the Mediterranean or like the Atlantic or, or the Pacific. It was a rather small body of water. These guys were what, what you might call shallow water sailors. Now I'll admit in the Navy, that's what we called the Coast Guard. But these guys were, were shallow water sailors. This is what these people knew. And, and they went out into the shallow waters and they would, they would fish there, but you really didn't find them venturing out into, into deep water. And if you were going to go out in the deep water, the best time to do it was in the evening when the storms were less likely to come up. So Jesus is on the Jewish side of the lake, and he wants to go over to the Decapolis, the Gentile side, where the non-Jews are. He wants to go over there. So he's going to heal this demoniac, which we're going to look at next week. But Jesus is making the call. He says, we're going over there. This furious squall kicks up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, I'm telling you, most of you folks know that I'm a sailor, not just a little boat sailor, but a, a, Navy, a Navy sailor over 30 years. And I'm telling you, I've been on ships out at sea where at 50 feet up, up on the top of the ship, I've been there and had waves coming up and hit me in the face. This, this is not fun, okay? This isn't like a, a ride at Disneyland. Okay? This is a scary time to be at sea when you have the waves and the water getting into the boat. So this is happening. This is going on. And what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping 
And notice, notice a little detail, sleeping on a cushion. Again, you see, the, you see the vestiges of Peter's eyewitness account there. He's sleeping on a cushion. Now, you've probably been tired like this before. He's exhausted. He's trying to catch some shut-eye there. And it says that the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, get up, wake up. And what they say next pushes a button on Jesus. Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we drown? Now, now imagine, why was Jesus so tired in the first place? He's tired because he's going from village to village, town to town, preaching this message that the kingdom of God is near. He's come to reconcile a, a broken world, a, a world that's, that's been broken, a humanity that's been broken. He's come to reconcile them to God the Father. God becomes man. He penetrates the world that, that he created. The artist paints himself into the painting. And then he begins to work around the creation that he created in the first place. They're going to reject him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to mock him. They're going to rebuke him. They're going to hit him. They're going to beat him. They're going to strip him naked. And they're going to nail him to a tree. And he's doing all of this so that we may have a hope of a future life with the Father. That we, although we will experience death, we will only experience temporary bodily death. We'll experience heaven forevermore. Because Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin, that we could become his righteousness. And you've got the nerve to ask him, do you care? Do you care if we drown? He gets up and, and it's like he says, I got to tell you guys something, but before I do, it's, it's, it's kind of loud here. And so it says he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The, the, literal, the literal translation there from, from the Greek is be muzzled, be muzzled. And any of you that have dogs, you know what it's like to have your dog just barking, 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 barking with the dog to be quiet, right? Be muzzled. And it says the wind died down and it was completely calm. Do you care? We'll hold that for a minute. Stop. Now, did you just ask me that? And here's what we've seen so far. In Mark chapter 1, he shows power over the spiritual world. In chapter 3, he shows that he can, he can restore broken and, 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 and lame limbs. Uh, he comes to us and he, and he shares all this with us. In chapter 1, he also shows that he has the power over sickness. In chapter 2, he has power over physical things. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see him exhibit his dominion over creation. Now, they've seen some stuff, but this is new. This just takes it to, a, to an even higher level. The man stands up and just says, knock it off, be muzzled. And all the disciples are like, whoa. And now it doesn't say that, well, then slowly the clouds just rolled back and went away and the rain just stopped. No, 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 no. It happened suddenly. It's, it's as if the sea just got caught doing something by its parents that it shouldn't be doing and it just went, boom, stopped, quiet. The seas went dead. And then he turns back to the disciples. Now imagine the weight of that moment. You just told creation to knock it off. And it did. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
Tell me what brings you more fear now. What are you more afraid of, that, that you thought you were going to die in this boat or, or that I told the death storm to knock it off and it listened to me? Where does your fear exist now? Do you have no faith? Faith in what? What did Jesus say at the beginning? He said, we're going there. Did you hear me say that? He said, we're going there. Did everybody in the boat hear me say that we're going over there? Didn't I say that? And now you're questioning it? Sometimes when we read Scripture, when we see Jesus rebuking, when we see Jesus frustrated or, or angry, I think we, we project onto Jesus either ourselves or our earthly experience. And I really think that we need to read this, we need to hear this father heart of who God is. I believe Jesus, even in his anger, even in his frustration, I, would th I think it would be proper for us that, that we begin to listen to it through the lens of a father rebuking his child, but not rebuking his child by going, you idiot, you moron, you're stupid. And many of us heard those scripts growing up, didn't we? And if we're honest, it, it kind of shades in a negative way the, the way that we view our Heavenly Father. But that's not how He thinks. But lovingly, comfortingly, He confronts their lack of faith. Do you still have no faith? And in verse 41, it says, They were terrified. How come? I don't know what's scarier to be in the middle of a storm or, or then to be staring into the eyes of someone who just told it to stop, and it did. At least the storm was off the boat. The God who just stopped it is in the boat with you, and he's staring at you. Earlier when Peter first realized who Jesus was, when, when Jesus told him, put your, put your net out on the other side of the boat earlier in Mark and pull it up, and it was so full of fish that they couldn't, they couldn't pull it out, Peter's response was to fall face down in front of God and say, Jesus, get off my boat. I don't deserve for you to be here. Later, we're going to see in the Gospels, when, when, when Thomas puts his fingers in the nail marks in Jesus' hand, he cries out, my Lord and my God, as he falls face down in front of him. They were terrified, and they asked one another, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? This is going to, to bring on a new section in Mark. It's a great segue that Mark gives us that's going to begin this new theme of, of Mark of who is this guy. And really, as if you were with us at the beginning, I kind of told you this is one of the questions that we deal with throughout the book of Mark. The question that we have to ask, who is this Jesus? Who is he to history? Who is he to you individually? It's going to come to a high point at the right of the midsection. Mark 16 chapters long. At, the, at chapter 8, it comes to a very high section. When, when at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks Peter and the boys, who do you say that I am? It's a question that we all must answer. But here's where I want to go with this today. So often, and some of us live, you know, the faith that, that, we, the faith that we have in Christ, is, is, it's unshakable, it's strong in and of itself. You can literally live in the motto of like, well, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, the end. Now, I've seen that bumper sticker, and I tell you, I don't find that life goes that easy. It's not that simple. There are times for, for most of us that, that we experience life in a way that, that we think that, that the things, uh, 
that are going on are creating difficulties in our life, and we don't understand it, and we, we question God, and we question why things are the way they are. And it's not just in our lives, but it's, it's in the lives around us, and it's in the world at large. And I think that this story is so indicative the way that a lot of us feel or have felt or, or will feel in life. Today I want to talk about the subject of suffering. Now, it's not going to be long, okay? We're not going to go for three hours, although we, we, we could. We could take a long time talking about this. It's a, one of the greatest uh, philosophical questions that, that has been around for, 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 for millennia. The number one question that comes up through this and the guys ask Jesus in the boat is, do you care? And the number one question in the minds of people is, does God care? The number one reason that people don't believe in God, if you talk to atheists or, or, or agnostics or something, you know, the, they, they'll, they'll say, well, it's because of the, the question of uh, why, why doesn't God do something about all the evil, all the bad things that happen, all the suffering, all the pain that's out there. And you may say on this Christmas weekend, this Boxing Day, you know, I'm not suffering. This isn't for me. Well, maybe it's not for you this weekend. Maybe it's for someone that you're going to be in the pool with or playing pickleball with or playing horseshoes with in the future. And they're going to go like, oh, you go to, you go to church, you go to chapel? Well, I just couldn't believe in a God who would allow evil in this world. And without some kind of answer, you're just going to go, huh, interesting. Next serve. And I think across the board, we need to make sure that, that we who call ourselves Jesus followers can, as, as Peter says, we can talk about and, and be able to give an answer to those who ask the reason for the hope that we have within us. We need to be prepared to give an answer to people who say, does Jesus care? Does God really care? We need to be prepared to, to talk to him about that. And the, and the title that I've that's the title I put on your, on your life notes. You'll see there at the top, Does Jesus Care? Now, I want you to look under where it says, Making Sense of the Storm, and we're going to start filling our blanks. And I encourage you, if you don't normally, if you're not normally a note taker, take notes this morning, because you, you may want to come back to this later. Put this away in your Bible at home or someplace, or put a note in your, write, copy it in a note in, in your iPhone or something, because you may find sometime you're wanting to understand this so that you can share it with someone else. I've put three statements, three premises there. I want you to fill them in. The first is God is perfectly loving. That's the first premise. God is perfectly loving. The second premise, God can do whatever he wants. But number three says, there is evil in the world. God is perfectly loving. He can do whatever he wants, and yet there's evil in the world. And we call this problem of e the, the, the problem of evil or the, the trilemma. And man has been struggling with this since before the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Now, people aren't going, they're not saying, well, my issue with Christianity is the trilemma. That's not, that's not how they're thinking about it. They, they don't know that, that that's what they're thinking or what they're saying. They don't have, you normally don't have a, a box to put it in. Here's how it sounds in common day life when we talk about this. If God is so good, then, then why do babies die? No parent should have to bury their child, should they? I think we would all probably agree with that. A couple weeks ago, down right across from Caliente on the corner of Cork Hill and Aurora, a car came up and hit a bus, the back of a school bus, and then it went around the school bus, and it ran over a, a, a speed limit sign, and it hit four kids, and a nine-year-old girl died. 
Why does that happen? God, you're able to do whatever you want, right? And God, if you're perfectly loving, then, then why? Why is there divorce? Why is there brokenness? Why is there cancering? Why is there suffering in the world? And you're taking precautions just like the disciples did. They travel at night. Evening, as I said, was the safest time to cross the sea. You don't want to go through in the middle of the day because there's, there's a higher likelihood of storms on the Sea of Galilee in the day. They're going across at night. You go in the evening. Well, there might be more significant storms, but they're very much more rare in the evening time. So they did exactly what they should, and they, they had a proximity to Jesus. I mean, he was right there in the boat with them. They'd made the precautions in their life. They did everything that they ought to, and yet they find themselves in the middle of a raging storm. And that's how we exist sometimes. You ever been there before in your life where you look toward heaven and you ask God, what are you doing? Are you napping? Hello? Are you there, God? Look at the world. Wake up. Look at my life. Look at the lives of the people around me. Look at the injustice. Wake up and do something. I was talking to my sister on the phone last night, and I knew some things were going on. She spent, she spent the last, you know, couple, three years and trying to figure out what this autoimmune thing is that she, that's going on in her life. She's got her father-in-law is in the hospital. He's been in and out of the hospital like four or five times in the past couple months. And then I found out last night, and I didn't even realize she hadn't told me, that her, that her husband had been taken in last July. And he's probably going to have to have a major organ transplant. And all this stuff is going on just in my sister's life. Where are you, God, in all of this? Look at the injustice. It's not fair. Wake up and do something. And if you haven't been here in your life, you're, you're either out of touch with reality or you live in some other kind of philosophical worldview that makes no sense when it comes to suffering. Because contrary to every other philosophy, Christianity comes in and says something completely different. The fatalistic view of suffering says that suffering is overwhelming and it's just part of life. Contrary to Buddhism, Christianity says that suffering is real. It's, just, it's not just illusory. We're not just imagining the suffering. Contrary to karma, Christianity teaches that suffering is not fair. Contrary to secularism, Christianity teaches that suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it all. And if faced right, it can, give us, it can drive us deeper into a relationship with the God who created everything. The question of, of why doesn't he get up and do something about it is the philosophical and existential question plaguing most people, even if they don't consciously realize it. And we need to have a proper response to it. I believe there's two different uh, categories of response. So one is an intellectual response, and the other is an emotional heart response. And I'm going to briefly go over both of these as we're talking about the subject of suffering and, and why Jesus doesn't wake up in the boat. Now, the logical problem of evil says this. It's logically inconsistent for God to allow evil. And the reason that it's considered inconsistent, logically inconsistent, given these first three premises that we talked about a minute ago that you've got there in your life notes, is either it's the case that God can stop evil but he's not really loving, or that he's really loving, but he can't stop it. And if he can't stop it, 
then he's not actually a maximally great being. A maximally great being means that he is that which nothing else is greater than God. So God couldn't just be kind of powerful. He'd have to be all-powerful. And the argument is if he's not powerful enough to stop evil, then he's not God. And he'd have to be perfectly loving, and if he wasn't perfectly loving, we could perceive something better than being kind of loving, which would be perfectly loving, and if he's not that, then we could throw him out. And so the problem of evil historically has been if he's able to stop it and he's willing to stop it, and yet there's evil, he's either not actually loving, therefore not God, or he's not actually powerful, and therefore not God. Now this argument has been used for, for a long time to, to refute Christianity until Alvin Platinga presented his, uh, his free will defense in his 1977 book, God, Freedom, and Evil. Platinga's work settled the debate such that even non-Christian philosophers admit the problem of evil no longer exists. Platinga pointed out, he said, number one, when we say it's logically inconsistent for God to allow evil, what we're actually saying is this. We, or, or I, can't think of a good reason for God to allow evil. Isn't that what we're actually saying? You and I can't think of a good reason for God to allow evil. Because we understand that sometimes in order for there to be a greater good, that then there, there must be a minor bad, right? Now, what if it was the case that, that we would all appreciate that if God understood a greater plan and there was something smaller in the way that he might execute that in order to create the greater plan, wouldn't he? What we're saying is that if I can't even give a good reason for evil, then there must not be one. Therefore, God doesn't exist. But that in and of itself is illogical. If you say there's a God who's out there who's, who's able to stop evil, but he couldn't possibly have an understanding of it that I wouldn't have, that's the height of pride, and that's logically inconsistent. Secondly, Patinka says this. He says, God could have reasons that we don't understand. God could have reasons that we don't understand. In other words, what if God said, here's the reason for evil? And we went, well, I don't like that reason. It doesn't change the, the fact that there is a God. It doesn't mute the fact that there's a divine being. And it's just like you saying, well, there is no, there is no God, and I hate the way that he acts. That doesn't make any sense. Thirdly, in our original premises, the number two says that God can do whatever he wants. But that's actually not true because... God is limited by logic and his character in what he can do. God is limited by logic and his character in what he can do. Now, this is really difficult for us to understand, those of us that grew up in, in, with a literalist mindset when it comes to faith and, and stuff, and we were taught that, well, God is absolutely omnipotent. He can do anything. Yes, but we automatically assume when we say that God can do anything that it means logically inside his character. You see, God doesn't make decisions based on whim like we do. But he makes decisions based on character, which is why God is always perfect. He doesn't come to a moral scenario and go, well, let me see, I, I, I choose to do the right thing. No. He doesn't always choose to do the right thing uh, every time. He is the right thing every time. It's not a choice that he makes. It's a being that he is. God doesn't do good. He is good. 
So to ask God himself to do something wrong is logically inconsistent. But we, you know, in our height of human pride and, and trying to be smart, you know, we, we try to trap him. We ask these questions like, you know, well, if he's really God, can he make a square with three sides? Or if he's really God, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And we think we're, we're all smart and smug there. Well, you know what the answer to those questions are? No, he cannot, because it's logically inconsistent. It's nonsense. A triangle with four sides would be a square, and a square that has three sides would be a triangle. So to ask him if he's a maximally great being, he must be the best available attribute in every character, every category. And on the realm of being extremely illogical and strictly logical, is it better to be illogical or logical? Logical. So guess what he is? He's logical. And he doesn't mess with things that are illogical because that would be to condescend and to be less than God. He doesn't do illogical things. And he only does what is inside his character to do. Now some will say, well, there's, there's so much evil in the world. It'd be better if God just made us robots. He couldn't have made us robots. He can't because God created mankind to know him and to respond to him with free will, to seek him and to seek his glory freely. You know, can a robotic being bring glory to God? No. Because God says that his glory is brought about in free obedience, in free will obedience, and that's where love truly exists. The reason that love means something is because there's freedom to not love. So it would be logically inconsistent for God to make free will beings that must obey and love him. And when God makes free will beings, he takes the chance because they have the choice to not choose him. They have the choice to, to not love. But that choice to not love brings about all the different things that we see in this broken and fallen world. Because when Adam chose not obedience and chose autonomy and chose to, to not follow, all of creation fell. Romans 8 says that all creation became the subject of frustration. That word in the Greek is another word for futility. Futility means that it, it falls short of its, of its purpose. And your body will always fall short of its purpose because its purpose was to live forever. Your relationships will fall short of their purpose. Your worship will fall short. Everything we do falls short of its original purpose because we live in a sin-fallen world. Everything, it says, is groaning. The world is groaning for, for restoration, which is why those of us who are Jesus followers, for us, heaven is not just a consolation prize. It's not just the golden ring at the end of our life. It's a restoration where we'll finally see how it was really meant to be. It's a restoration where futility is taken away and, and nothing falls short anymore and it exists in perfection. Now the emotional problem can be much more intense. It's where you may present some of these uh, logical arguments and stuff to someone and then they'll, they'll say, well, that's fine. But how come my younger brother has cancer then? How come my mother died when I was six years old? How come my parents were divorced when I was 10? And so you go, yikes. And, and, and those are kind of cold and unfeeling answers, aren't they, when someone speaks out of, the, out of the heart, out of the emotion. 
This is the emotional problem of evil where people say, well, I refuse to believe in a God who would allow such evil as these things. Well, I don't think that we can make total sense of what suffering is there for. But I hope by the end of this message that I can present to you a really good case on what suffering is not there for. What it's impossible for it to mean. Consider what Tim Keller wrote in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He tells us, he says, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And yet he goes around crying all the time. He's always weeping, a man of sorrows, the Bible calls him. Do you know why? Not because he's whiny, but because he is perfect. Because when you're not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world around you. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the happiness of the Lord exists inside of sorrow also. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. The weeping drives you into the arms of the Father where we experience joy forevermore. There's a picture of Jesus in John chapter 11. Jesus' buddy Lazarus, one of his best friends, has died. And he says, I'm going to go back. It's, it's, it's not permanent. I'm going to go back and I'm going to raise him from the dead. He calls his shot, just like he says here in Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to the other side of the lake. He says, I'm going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And then he shows up to the graveside of Lazarus, and what does he do? John 11:35, the shortest, the shortest sentence in the Bible. You may know it. It says, Jesus wept. How come? How come he wept? Doesn't he know that, that Lazarus is coming back? He just told us. Yeah? Then what's he weeping for? Because he condescends and he becomes one of us. That's why he weeps. Because even though we know the end result, it doesn't mean that God is uncaring or unfeeling or unyielding in our pain. He weeps right alongside us. There's a great book called Night, written by Elie Wiesel, where he tells of witnessing the hanging of a young boy on the gallows at Auschwitz. And as the youth is dying a slow death, struggling for air, a man out in the crowd shouts, Where is your God now? And before he could get finished, another guy cries out and says, Right there, being hung on the gallows. He's with us in our pain. He's not distant. Even though he sees all of mankind and all of humanity and the whole picture, he doesn't look at us in suffering and go, well, you guys, if you only saw things the way I did, it all makes sense in the end. No. It says that he gets down and he weeps with us. When someone gets sick, he weeps with us. He, he's not this cold, unfeeling, distant deity. He comes into our pain and he exists in it with us. When God saw the world in disarray, he became suffering and suffered on a cross. He's not distant from it. I want to give you five things to remember as we deal with suffering. Number one, the world as we know it right now, we need to keep this in mind. We're in a state of rebellion against God. When God created the universe and created mankind, he made it tov mayod, as the Hebrew says. He made it very good. He made it very good. That means perfect. 
Nothing was futile. Everything did its purpose. But we now live in a fallen world, as I've said over and over again. Why is cancer here? Why is sin here? Why is brokenness here? Why is molestation here? Why are all these things present? Because of our rebellion. Because sin entered the picture and everything fell short of God's original intent. We categorically asked God to remove himself from the picture. We got this, God. We'll handle it from here. And sin created this, this barrier between God and man. That's what Romans 8 talks about. We, we talked about that frustration that the world's groaning with the frustration the world's going through now. Number two, if it's any consolation for this emotional problem, we remind ourselves that the purpose of life is not to eat, drink, and be merry, okay? Contrary to what, you know, the commercials may tell you, you know, you go only go around once in, while, once in life, so go for all the gusto. The purpose of life is to glorify and know God. It's to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. That's our reason for whatever years we've been given. It's to be conformed or transformed into becoming more like Christ and bringing as many people with us to salvation as possible. That is why we exist. If anybody tells you anything else, they're wrong. That's why we exist. Number three, God's view stretches beyond this life and into eternity. It could be said that God always plays the long game, you golfers out there. What if God gives us and, and what if God answers our prayers in exactly the way we would ask him to if we knew what he knew? What if for one moment we could, we could put on God-shaded glasses and we looked at everything and it just made sense to us and we went, oh, I get it. I think that's what scripture calls us to in faith. If you knew, if I knew what he knows, I think we would ask for the world to be the way that it is right now. How much of the Bible do we, do we need before we understand the purpose of Jesus Christ coming and, and dying on the cross? How many, how many pages do we need before the story of the suffering of Jesus makes sense to us? In my Bible, it's 1,950 pages that it takes to understand that. And what's our frustration? We're in the middle of our own story. And we're going, why? And we're going page by page saying, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Where are you? What are you up to? To which we can either choose to rip up the story and go, I'm going to write my own story, or we can yield and go, God, you're the author. You're the founder. You're the finisher of my faith. I don't get this, but I'm going to trust you. Number four, and I recognize this is a big word here, okay? I needed it to, to mean what I mean. Knowledge of God is an incommensurable good. Knowledge of God is an incommensurable good. It's what Paul talks about when he says, I've considered all things as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It's the idea of measuring up everything else that someone has offered to you and saying, it's not worth this one thing. I've got a, I've got a, a wood carving that I, I typically hang in my, uh, in my office. It's in my office at home here. I don't have it in this office. But it, it's, it's like a guy, I got it in Brazil years ago, and there's a story behind getting it all, but it looks like a guy sitting there writing. It looks like it could be like Matthew or Mark, someone writing the scriptures, and it's, it's a really cool wood carving. I, I should have put a picture of it up here for you. 
But uh, it's very special to me because it's a one of a kind. You, you won't find anything like it else in the world. And uh, I was there in, in Rio, and I really wanted to get this. I normally don't buy a lot of stuff myself when I'm deployed. I get things for my kids, my wife, my kids, and stuff. And um, I didn't have enough money for this this night, for this day there at the flea market in, in Rio. And uh, a Jesuit priest that was on the deployment with me, Father Bob Keem, loaned me the extra money I needed to get that. And later when I went to pay him back, he wouldn't allow me to pay him back. And years later, I was doing uh, premarital counseling for a couple, and this lady kept seeing this in my office there at the Marine Corps uh, Air Station, and she wanted to buy it. <laughs> and there's no way. There, there, there's no way. That, that'll go to one of my kids someday, or unless you know, they don't want her or something. But it's of incommensurable worth to me. No one can compensate me enough for that. Not because of the thing but because of what it represents, what it, what, it, what it means to me. So it's the idea of measuring up everything else that someone's offered you and saying, it's not worth this one thing. It's when you look at your wife at the, at the end of life and her having cancer and battling through it and spending sleepless nights in a hospital over and over and over again. And she says, was it worth it? And you go, baby, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. That's what the word incommensurable means. Knowing God is an incommensurable good. So even in the face of suffering, in God's economy, to understand that ultimately salvation is what is most important, even if these 60, 70, 80 years are just the worst, most painful, broken tribulation for us, that beats it all. Number five, and lastly, suffering can't mean that God is absent. Suffering can't mean that God is absent. Ask me what suffering means fully, I don't know. Ask me why there seems to be gratuitous suffering, I don't know. I don't know everything that suffering means, but I know what suffering doesn't mean. And I know that suffering doesn't mean, I know what suffering doesn't mean because God hates suffering so much and he loves us so much that he became suffering and endured suffering for the love of us. So how could we ever say that a preponderance of suffering means an absence of God if when God was here, he suffered? And he says, follow me. Conform to my image. Be like me. I had trouble. In this world, you're going to have troubles. To come to the conclusion after hearing all these things, if he was a man of suffering, familiar with pain, for us to go, when I experience pain, God must be absent. It's not about you being good enough. He was perfect. It's not about you being wise enough or smart enough. He was, he was ultimately wise. It's not being closer to God in proximity to God. He was God himself. He became sin so that we could be forgiven of sins. He was betrayed so that we could be comforted. He was cast out so that we could draw near. He was stripped naked so that we could have dignity. He was set aside as glory so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. He was tied up and bound to a tree so that we could be free. God so loved us and hates our suffering that he came down and he did something about it. And that all started in a manger in Bethlehem. 
We absolutely don't know the full reason why God allows evil and suffering to continue. It's true we don't know, but the reason is, but we do know what the reason isn't. We know what it can't be, and it can't be God not loving us. I don't know if I could handle all the suffering. I only know a few of your stories and, uh, around the stories in, in here. I know we've got people in our congregation here. I know of at least two, two couples that have lost two of their children, have buried two of their children. And there's people here, you've gone through stuff that, that I don't even know about. But I do know one thing, that we serve the only God, the only system that is able to make sense of, even if we hate it, the suffering is meaningful. Because suffering, even at its worst, this groans of frustration can draw us nearer to God and nearer to being like Christ. If you've lost a child, if you've gone through a miscarriage, if you've gone through a divorce, if you lost your job or, or any of the other things, church should be somewhere where, where we can freely talk about God because God was close the brokenhearted. He identifies himself almost exclusively with the widow, the orphan, the broken down, the downtrodden. It says in Isaiah 61, he came to free the suffering. He came to be close to the brokenhearted, to bind up those who were lost. And as Jesus' followers, we are God's ambassadors and, and representatives to a world trying to make sense of suffering. And we have a resounding answer to the world's question. Yes, Jesus cares. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling to make sense out of life, struggling to make sense out of suffering, please know that he does care. He sees your suffering and he wants to walk through it with you. And if you're here this morning and you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, snag Bruce or I after the service and talk to us. Amen. Amen. Please stand for a final song. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.